Welcome back, loyal listeners, to the Real Japan Podcast. I am one of the hosts, Kenzo. And I am Ferg. And as we do every week, we will be giving you the latest top news headlines from Japan and some other maybe not headlines that but uh that we found interesting so look forward to that and before we get started we'll see what the two of us have been up to respectively for the past week and we'll start off with furry yes sir so this past week i took a stroll around the zenkoji area of nagano zenkoji is like the main kind of temple in nagano kind of like mm. a famous sort of sightseeing area of the city and around the temple there's lots of nice little shops and things yeah and i went to the main store of this company called yawataya isogoro it's a famous spice company i actually i gave you some spices oh yeah yeah those are good yeah the the one i gave you i think was that the bird eye one yeah, it was one. the it was the spiciest of the bunch. Yeah, it yeah. says on the packet or on the advertising material, experience the ultimate heat, more than three times spicier than ichimi. We recommend you try something else if you don't care for hot spices. Was it was it really spicy? Uh, it was decently spicy for a commercial product. Yeah, decently, but maybe yeah. not too spicy for someone used to real mexican food and things i imagine yeah i mean if you're a spice enthusiast um mm. generally speaking yeah like um I, th- I think in any country like the stuff you find like in the commercially available because they can't make it too bad right or else they'll they'll might create legal issues so yeah 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 also as well it's just in general, Japanese food doesn't tend to be that spicy. Yeah, yeah, certainly, yeah. It's uh, definitely like Korean food or like Southeast Asian food, like uh, you know Indonesian food, Malaysian food, or Indian mm. food for that matter. It's definitely a lot spicier than Japanese food. Yeah, certainly. But the reason I wanted to mention that I visited this store is because at the back of it, they have this cool kind of like cafe type uh, curry shop. Where like you Japanese can... style curry? Or? Japanese style curry, yeah, but it's quite good. They make it with their, you know, their own spices. So they're quite uh-huh. sort of proud of it. And it tastes a bit different to the normal, the regular Japanese curry. Actually, they do have a green curry as well there. Okay. Yeah. And when you uh, order a curry, they give you like a rack of spices as well that you can add to it or, Ah, you know, their own spices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I also had a little macaron for, um, you know, for dessert. And Mm. they have these macarons in all different spice flavors as well. So I had mine. Well, they're spicy then? Well, I'm not sure. I didn't get the actual spicy ones. I got the shiso, which is, um, I think the English name of it is perilla, I read online. It's like a kind of Japanese herb. Yeah, but, it's, uh, it's like the Japanese version of uh, cilantro. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a good good comparison, I think. But mine, but it's it would be an unusual flavor for a macaron, certainly. But I had shiso flavor macaron and a chocolate macaron, which is just, you know, chocolate, obviously. 
but it was pretty yeah. good. If any listeners are in Nagano and they like curry and are interested in spices and things, I recommend they check out this company. Yeah, I'd like to check it out next time I'm out there. Yes, sir, certainly. Yeah. If you can find time among your between your wild drinking and partying schedule. <laughs> no, not anymore. Not since that COVID hit. No, sir. Well, how has your weekend or past week been? Uh, pretty, pretty uneventful, as always. Uh, I don't think I went anywhere. Um, although, well, this, yeah, okay. So here's a story. I got a story. Okay. So I'm I'm cruising down the freeway, right? Hmm. You know, I'm just I'm just enjoying it. I'm not going fast or anything. Just just chilling. And then yep. I got pull up. I pull up, but so there's there's a car in front of me, you know. And I'm not I'm not I'm not a tailgating guy, right? You know, I'm not like riding them or anything. So just I'm just staying a comfortable distance away. And it's a clear day. And out of nowhere, I get like bombarded with water. Really? Because well, like, he had done his, he had um, turned on his windshield cleaner. Oh yeah, sometimes people do that if you get too close, right? Yeah, but so but I couldn't really, you know, was it? Did he think I was riding him, or was he just oblivious? You know what I mean? Mm. And I had just washed my car. And that that was just it just made me sad. Damn. Yeah. But I don't know, like who I don't I don't know. Like who does that, you know? On the freeway? Yeah. Like I just I just don't as a as a matter of course. Like I don't ever clean my windshield on the freeway. And if I absolutely have to like I'll get over into like the slow lane or something, mm. and make yeah. sure there's no one behind me before I hit the little lever. Mm. But yeah, I guess some like no matter where you live, some people just don't just don't care. Yeah, probably just wasn't paying attention or didn't think. I imagine. Yeah, yeah. You know, or, I think, or, it, or maybe just wasn't aware that if you do that and there's someone behind you, it'll hit them. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I was talking to my, uh, my wife about it, and she, yeah, she she was like, "Really? That hits the car behind you?" <laughs> and I was like, "Yes, yes, it does." <laughs> so I don't know, maybe maybe it's just not a, uh, maybe it's not something they cover at traffic school over here. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like maybe it, maybe it's the same everywhere, but yeah, there does seem to be like an alarming because i drive a lot on the country roads here yeah 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 and it does seem to be i think maybe more drivers than in britain leave their you know full beams on oh like, right yeah i they're, don't uh, know if it's highs just, yeah they're bright ex exactly exactly yeah. and i don't know if it's just that that is another example of that sort of not being aware or not thinking about other drivers so much like I said, perhaps that's just my perception. Perhaps it is just exactly the same wherever you drive. I don't know. Yeah, I think in the city, I don't see it too often. People mm. with their brights on, but but yeah, they're they're, they're out there for sure, as as mm. they are in the U.S. as well. But um, I guess it might be more common for someone living out kind of in the countryside more because people probably just leave it on. Yeah, because there yeah. are relatively few cars on the road. Yeah. 
and the, and the roads are typically darker because of the less street lighting. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, of course, I don't mind. Like you know, if if it's like, you know, there's someone coming over a hill or something, and there's nothing they can do. But yeah, 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 for sure. But you know, it's annoying when someone's like driving behind you with their full oh, beams. Oh yeah, on. I hate oh. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. come on, man. Well, the other thing that gets me as well is like when it's not even really dark. Like it'll be like six or seven in the evening, so it's kind of dusky, you know. Yeah. And there's no need for having your full beams on, and you'll have someone like driving along, with blasting you. Yeah. I mean, we've yeah. talked about it a lot on this podcast, but I think a lot of it, without sounding wanting to sound too kind of stereotypical or prejudiced, is older drivers often. I think. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well. Uh, but to be fair, there are a lot of older drivers just in general. Yeah, that's what I mean, right? Especially where I live, because it's like a rural yeah. kind of community. Mm. But yeah, that's uh, that's that's my my story for the week. All right. Well, shall we move on to a roundup of some of the main headlines in the news in Japan this past yep. week? So, one that I wanted to mention, kind of sadly, um, the actress Yuko Takuchi uh, died this past weekend apparently from suicide it seems her husband found her hanging according to news reports quite a kind of shocking death you know she had two young children she mm-hmm. was quite a well-known celebrity it was yeah. reported widely in overseas media as well so probably some listeners will already be aware but kind of the reason i wanted to mention this was because it follows on the back of we've had a number of celebrity deaths recently you know which have been sort of apparently uh suicides yep we had say ashna another actress earlier in september had haruma miura who's a very well-known star apparently took his own life back in july mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. as we talked about on this podcast hana kimura one of the uh, stars on the popular show terrace house committed suicide in may yep so it's pretty sad, you know, to see these these big names sort of that we often look up to and think they're, you know, living the dream or whatever. TV stars, you know, committing suicide. Yeah, it I guess seems... uh, more money, more problems. <laughs> That's what they say, isn't it? Yeah. But uh, you know, just goes to show anyone can be, anyone can be affected, and you know, like it says on all the news reports and stuff, if you're feeling the the pressure, get some help. Yep. There is for English language listeners, there is uh, in Japan, there is TEL, I think, which is like a mental health organization in Japan for foreigners or, or for English speakers. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, maybe if anyone needs help, they can try giving them a call. Yeah. All right. Don't, uh, don't go it alone. No, sir. Yep. Did you have another... Uh, main story for the headlines uh yes yeah, just a quick, quick one here um so uh, as we record this is o- october 1st and starting this month uh, the japanese government is going to start lifting some of its travel restrictions mm-hmm. um starting out with um some of the countries that are quote-unquote you know safer as far as covid cases are concerned yeah. Um, and the ones mentioned in the article were uh, Aust- uh, Australia and New Zealand mm. and Vietnam. 
are like three of the big ones that the article talked about that uh, are going to have the restrictions lifted this month. Yeah. So hopefully um, the trend will continue and I'll be able to visit family sometime soon, but I'm not getting my hopes up for the U.S. Yes, sir. I mean, I'm kind of the same. I would like to visit Britain sometime in the not too distant future. Do you have any thoughts when that might be that some more travel restrictions are lifted for some of these countries that have been hit worse by COVID? I I mean, as far as uh, just talking about what I'm somewhat familiar with, but as far as the U.S. is concerned, like, I don't really... Probably the spring at the mm. at the earliest is kind of my, my gut feeling. Like re- realistically, there's probably not gonna be too much progress until there's a vaccine, you know. Yeah, yeah. And of course that all raises more questions about the Olympics, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about that one. No, sir. I mean in the uh in the UK there has been another flare up of coronavirus cases recently, so it's difficult, as, yeah. as you said, to tell when travel restrictions will be lifted. J- just uh, generally speaking, like if, because um, the weather's starting to cool down and, you know, more people get sick during the colder months. So if there's another big wave during the winter, this coming winter, then that that really kind of puts the Olympics in, in, a, in a doubtful spot. Yes, sir. Most certainly. I mean, like I've, I'm pretty sure they're going to power through it like one way or the other just because they kind of have to. But there might be some countries that just don't show up or, you know, I mean, it's, it's going to be a weird one. Yeah, most certainly. It certainly seems that way. Yeah. I mean, while we're on the subject of coronavirus. So there were 577 new cases reported in the 24 hours prior to the 30th of September. This brought the total to 83,818 cases in Japan in total, which is still quite a an incredible figure when you com- compare it to the sort of numbers that we're seeing in, you know, in Europe and the US. Yeah, the US gets 80,000 cases in like two days. Yeah, it's uh, astonishing, yeah. isn't it? We also had seven new deaths, bringing the total to 1,575. There were 194 new cases in Tokyo, so kind of on the lower end of the numbers that we've seen over the past uh, couple of months, but not, you know, particularly low, really. It's been sort of down in the double digits at its lowest and up, you know, 400 plus at its highest, so kind of sort of what would you say steadily going along seeing new cases reported at quite a steady rate but yeah it it just hmm. seems to kind of oscillate between a hundred ish and then it'll kind of go back up to like 300 and it'll go back down and it just kind of it just sticks in that range of uh, a couple hundred on average a day yeah, certainly. It yeah. does seem that a lot of the sort of fear or the sense of anxiousness about coronavirus has, has gone from the, you know, normal people. Yeah, like, people, yeah, like, um, yeah, so because I talked about, you know, I was driving mm. this past week, and, and yeah, because I went shopping 
which is why I was on the freeway. But yeah, people are just out now. Like it's like everyone's wearing masks, which which is which is good. Um, and but as uh, aside from everyone's wearing a mask, things are no different now than they were b- before all this happened. Like there's good number of people just out and about and i think yeah just people in general just like screw it like <laughs> like they're tired of sitting at home yeah certainly yeah. Uh, you know i mentioned that i went to that cafe at the at the mm-hmm, start mm-hmm. and there were quite a few people you know sort of around like the temple area where there's these little shops and cafes and things and it's difficult to imagine that just a couple of months ago yeah Another story I was reading about in regard to coronavirus is that a group of university students have called for a go-to-campus campaign. So we've had go-to-travel, and there's also been, is it go-to-eats or something like that it's called? Yeah, I don't know what what that is all about. (laughs) It's been mentioned about trying to get people living in Tokyo to go to restaurants, but it's sort of unclear what the status of that is at the moment. But... This group of university students, they have called for this go-to-campus campaign. And, you know, according to them, the the group that behind this campaign, which is actually called Cut Tuition Fees in Half Action, or something like that. You know, obviously it's in Japanese. That's a rough translation mm. of the name. But according to them, their part-time jobs and other ways that students make money have been cut back. And at the same time, although universities have restarted classes, many of them are only having online classes and they're also limiting library access. Right. So this group of students, you know, they signed this position and presented it to the House of Council. It's the upper house of the parliament in Japan. And, you know, I have to be honest, I kind of see exactly where they're coming from. You know, if they're not getting the same service from the university, why are they paying their full tuition fees, you know. Yeah, I, I guess I guess if, it makes sense, yeah. If the government is encouraging people to go travelling around the nation, then, you know, you'd think that they could be looking at universities having in-person classes or at least providing some sort of support to students for tuition fees when they're, you know, if they if they are in a difficult situation or if they're not getting the same support from the university. Yeah, but they didn't go to class anyway. You know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, just trying to get yeah. something for nothing. Yeah. Do you think? Those, those but the, crazy I mean, kids. To be fair to the kids, they're they're the ones out campaigning for them to restart in person classes. So, you know, you gotta hand it to them. Yeah, I'm. Sh- those are the same kids that would like raise their hand when the teacher forgot to give homework. <laughs> well, of Damn course, it. Hey, you gotta, you gotta say that. Or when the teacher forgets to collect the homework, you gotta just oh, remind yeah, them. Yeah. You? <laughs> uh, shake my virtual fist at him. <laughs> well, um, just finally, in our sort of uh, roundup of the main headlines, another big story that's been widely focused on in the media in Japan over the past couple of weeks, I suppose now, Mm -hmm. has been the theft of money from people's bank accounts using 
you know, what the criminals have done is they have linked the bank accounts to sort of electronic money services. These kind of, you know, the main one, for example, has been NTT Docomo's um, e-money service, the Docomo uh, account service, where, yeah. you know, people can link it to those accounts and then you then use the e-money service to pay for things online or, you know, pay for their shopping and things and, and save points. Mm-hmm. But it seems that there's been a lack of security in the way that uh, these services have been checking that the bank accounts they're being linked to are actually, you know, owned by the the right person. And it's yeah, affected a number. And, of, and we've uh, and we've talked about it on this podcast um, a couple of times, I think. But in in Japan right now. Uh, it's it's notoriously a very cash centric society. So, the the government and, and 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 the private sector as well. Like everyone's trying to encourage the use of cashless payments. And for whatever reason, like credit cards are like people use them, people have them, but I I think maybe like elderly people. Um, or maybe, you know, like, like spouses who stay at home, um, these types of, there's certain segments of the population where they, they either like, they don't have any credit or they just don't want a credit card because they view it with some level of suspicion. Yeah. Um, that they don't have credit cards. So all the, there's all these different ways to try to there's all these different methods of cashless payment that have sprung up hmm, to and try and fill comp- that gap yeah and they're all competing with each other and since it's it's all the same shit right like there's hmm. no real difference between any of them like the only way they can d- differentiate is you know which one is easier to sign up for yeah and yeah like that that's really where the competition is and so they're they're making it easier and easier to sign up and if you make it too easy then you invite all this different kinds of of fraud yeah because because there's no uh like there's no way to verify or or the verification process is very lax for new users Exactly, exactly. I mean, a lot of the problem is that the banking system in Japan is actually kind of quite antiquated. You know, I was reading an interesting article that talked about how it's not all connected through the internet. It's connected by this kind of central banking system that Mm -hmm. uses its own sort of communications. And it's very simple. You know, there has been, in, in the past, it's been praised for being quite safe and quite secure because of its simplicity and because of the way it's kind of cut off from normal communications. But as we've seen right. now, as as there's this kind of move to create new services that that fill previously, um, you know, unre- you know, new needs, for example, for consumers, that mm. the old system just isn't keeping up with that, and it's created these kind of uh, gaps, or these kind of security holes in it, and yeah, I think that's kind of symbolized by the fact that one of the hardest hit banks has been Japan Post Bank, which is perhaps one of the most traditional sort of banks, I suppose you'd say. It's like the post office savings. Yeah, I think it's the... Bank. Isn't it the biggest bank in the world? As Is far it? As, I, I mm. think as far as the uh, the balance of deposits. 
it certainly could well be it's it's yeah i, mm. I think i read that somewhere J- just because japanese people um are they love to save their money mm. like they don't yes. they don't spend it yes and yes. so they tuck all their money away at the post office and mm. it has created yeah I, th- I think it's the world's largest balance of deposits mm-hmm. wow i didn't know that but it's certainly believable the the Japan Post Bank has, they said they've seen approximately 60 million yen stolen in this way, they believe. So 600 US dollars, not, it's not a huge sum, I suppose. Well, si- but what, 60 million? Yes, yeah. Okay, so 600,000 600, US, yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, sorry, what did I say? Did I not? You said um, 600. Oh, so, sorry, I meant to say 600,000. Yeah, drop some zeros there. <laughs> yeah, just a few. But, um, Yes. I mean, the problem is, as well, with this banking system, you know, if everyone had debit cards even, it would all be solved. But many people in Japan don't even have debit cards. You know, they have, like, cash cards and bank books. Like, so if you have a cash card, you can't really use it for online payments or anything. Yeah, it's, um, I think in the U.S., I... I don't even know if they ha- still have those. Like, I don't even know mm. if you can get a, it's just a straight up ATM only card. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I don't even know if that's available. Uh, maybe if you ask for it, they'll, they'll do it. But yeah, yeah. I've, I've certainly never seen a person use an ATM card any, any yeah. time recently. No, me too. In, uh, in the UK, I think in the UK, debit cards are standard now on all, all yeah. accounts. Right. Did we have any more headlines for our, our main roundup? No, I think that's about about it. All oh, right. Well, shall we move on to our main stories? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess I'll get mine out of the way. Okay. And this is an interesting story because, first of all, it involves a middle school teacher. He's a male, uh, unnamed male. He worked in uh, Yokohama as a middle school teacher. And he's 53 years old. And allegedly, he, in his off time, he made deliveries on, it doesn't say, but it's probably Uber Eats. Yeah. And made about 1.4 million yen over the course of a year. Mm. Yeah, which pretty is, standard which for a nice. kind of part-time job, I suppose. Yeah, decent chunk of change, right? And mm. he's probably doing it because they don't pay him enough. Yep. But uh, in any case, someone ratted him out, apparently. Damn. S- someone saw him making deliveries, and they reported him anonymously to the school board in Yokohama. And he has been suspended for six months. Hush, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, poor guy. Yeah. What do you think about that? Do you think teachers should be allowed to have a little job on the side? I don't see why not. I, I mean, because I think either in the U.S., maybe in the U.K. as well, in Japan, certainly. But, I mean, teachers don't get paid enough. Mm. And I certainly understand if he wants to just make some cash on the side. Oh, yeah, certainly. Yeah. yeah. But um, now the, the reason I chose this uh, topic was because it, it, it does speak 
uh, about the more general topic uh, in Japan, where it's very it's frowned upon to have a second job. Yeah, and I suppose you know back in the sixties, seventies, and eighties, often the typical model of employment in Japan was that you were like, you know, a kind of company man. You joined. Some one of these big companies and started at the mm-hmm. bottom and just worked there your whole career. But you know these days, like the the sort of typical model of employment is changing. You have more and more contract workers. You have more and more people who are like leaving their jobs and and starting other jobs. You know midway through their careers. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that this old kind of view of having a second job is quite outdated now yeah and and, you know you you do read about companies that are allowing people to have second jobs i mean that's it's definitely a topic that has um has come more to the forefront i think in light of this this whole covid thing yeah um but but still yeah the society in general it's not looked upon very well um very favorably to have a Mm. second job it's just it's just i guess i guess they see it as um what's what's the word i'm looking for you're uh unloyal you're you're i don't know you're biting the hand that feeds you kind of if you Mm. if you take on a second job like your your loyalty is in question i guess Yeah, yeah yeah You're being disloyal to your your primary employer. Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, I think it's just another example of corporate overreach. You know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They want to kind of control everything. Even when, in fact, you know, they don't really have any right to dictate how an employee spends his his weekends or his evenings or whatever. Obviously, if it's interfering with his main work, that's another another, uh, issue. Yeah, yeah. You know, and if sure, he's failing yeah. to meet the standards required in his in his job as a teacher, then mm-hmm. by but all yeah, means. Yeah, I mean, if he's able to, mm-hmm. you know, get it done as a, as an instructor, and then he has some free time, make some deliveries, make a little extra cash, then yeah, that's I don't see what's wrong with that. But unfortunately, that's not how people operate over here. Uh, I mean, he's certainly contributing more than. You know, someone who is spending their weekends playing golf or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. If anything, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, he's doing more for society, right? Because it means he's paying more taxes Mm. and he has more money to spend. So he's, you know, being a consumer of more goods. Yeah. Helping out in the crisis. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. So uh, well, we we wish him the best, and hopefully, maybe he'll get, maybe he'll find a new job where he can make more money. Yeah, certainly. or he can have two jobs and not be taken to task. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, teachers in Japan, I think traditionally do better than than maybe teachers in the West, where there has been like a lot of pressure in recent years on wages. Hmm. Hmm. You know, I think teaching in Japan is still seen as a more kind of stable lifetime like career. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do agree with you there. I mean, 
on the flip side of that, they work very long hours, often coming into school in the on the weekends and things to supervise the club activities. Right. You know, they don't right, have it right. easy. But I think, as you said, particularly in the West, teachers are not paid enough. Mm-hmm. Well, but that about, I guess, uh, wraps it up for that one. Okay. So in my story for this week, I wanted to talk about some shady goings-on at a subsidiary of Nippon TV Holdings that was involved in the solar power business in Japan. Okay. So, for listeners that weren't aware, you know, after the Fukushima disaster in 2011, the government decided they needed to rapidly reduce their reliance on nuclear power and increase the proportion of renewable power. Or throw more coal at it, take your pick. (laughs) Exactly, yes. Uh, You know, for the most part, they've taken the easier route of throwing more coal and also gas at it, but... yeah. On the renewable side, one way they attempted to do this was through this kind of fixed tariff system. And basically, this meant that if... So, like, you know, if I I buy a piece of land and say to the electricity company, you know, I'm going to build a solar power plant here, Mm -hmm. then the electricity company would agree to sell me power at a fixed rate. So that would mean that I have a very stable income over a very long time, say 30 years, 20 or 30 years. And then right. I could go to the bank and because I have this stable income coming in, you know, the electricity is com- company has promised me that they'll buy this amount of electricity for this fixed price, then I could get a loan very easily from the bank is the idea. And what the electricity company would do in turn is that they would add a surcharge to people's bills, this kind of renewable energy surcharge that any people in Japan can find on their electricity bills. And then, you know, that would be collected from the consumers and as, as a way of covering the cost of guaranteeing this fixed amount of power. But the fixed price of power to these uh, solar power suppliers, sorry. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, you know, this has led to kind of lots of examples of fraud and bad business practices in this industry in Japan in the, over recent years, and the government has been doing a lot to try and improve the situation. But, you know, we've had many sort of businesses that, like, bought up loads of land and then got contracts from the power companies to sell the power, you know, but then didn't actually, you know, then have, have been sitting on it and kind of looking at it as, like, an investment and hoping to sell it on later, you know, which obviously doesn't contribute anything in terms of the amount of renewable power to the grid, so... Yeah. All in all, it's a bit of a mess. And like you said, we have ended up filling the gap with lots of coal and gas instead. Mm-hmm. So that's that's just for a bit of background to sort of let listeners know how this kind of situation has come about in this particular industry. But in this case, so this guy, Ken Hayatsu, he is or he was the president of a subcontractor of a subsidiary of Nippon TV. Nippon TV is a big TV company in Japan, a listed yeah, company. Yeah, one of the biggest. Yeah, certainly, yes. And they were doing this, operating the solar panel business through their subsidiaries, um, Nippon, T- Nippon TV Work 24, and another company, I believe, called Sunway Work. I couldn't actually find the English name of this company, so it might be San A Work, or it might be Sunway Work, I'm not sure, but 
What's their obsession with work? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But um, anyway, the, so Nippon TV set up these subsidiaries and this guy, Hayatsu, was the president of a company called Synergy Corporation, which was basically a subcontractor and was mm-hmm. actually doing lots of the work, the operation of these solar panel, the solar panel business, Nippon TV solar panel business, based on contracts with these two subsidiaries. And um, the he has given some interviews to a local tabloid magazine, Shukan Bunshin, in which he has, you know, under his real name, he's talked about this and has, according to the articles, he's given lots of documentation, supporting documentation to kind of support what he said, you know, yeah. kind of all sorts of bills and invoices and communication and even voice recordings and things with wow. people involved. Yeah, so, but, you know, of course, a lot of this is his point of view, but it does seem like he has a lot of supporting documentation. Yeah. So, in this, in order to get the contract from the power company for this fixed uh, rate of power, which is kind of like we can think of that as a subsidy from the government almost because, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like I said, the, the power company will pass that on to regular consumers yeah. in the form of a surcharge. Apparently, according to the articles, um, the Synergy Corporation working with the subsidiaries, they used basically they submitted their application under kind of false specifications and then you know built actually built it with other panels and they did this by like changing the kind of stickers on the solar panels it said like the model numbers and things so they kind of wow, disguised so they, them as they went all out <laughs> they went all out and apparently they purchased these kind of fake stickers with the fake model numbers on through a you know a kind of person who is described as a broker who had some kind of connections with a company in Korea that manufactured solar panels. So it seems quite shady, according to the article. So, but... so uh, AliExpress? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it could well be. But <laughs> the other side of the story, which I thought was the more interesting side, and the one I want to talk about today, is sort of like the business practices of a particular executive who, from uh, Nippon TV called according to the article fumikazu miyaguchi who was basically doing the actually like running the you know like the day-to-day sort of business of building up this solar power business for nippon tv through their subsidiaries uh-huh. he was actually his official title was the head of the energy business department in sunway work and also at the same time a member of the sales promotion department in uh, Nippon TV Work 24, which I'll call Nippon TV 24. Okay. So, Miyaguchi, the guy from Nippon TV, and Hayatsu, the president of the subcontractor, they met in 2012, according to the article, at a bar or, or a restaurant, <laughs> sorry. The, yeah, where all uh, good business relationships begin. <laughs> yes, uh, well, Hayatsu was the manager of this bar or restaurant. It, and Miyaguchi was uh, a regular. Mm-hmm. He was in Itabashi in Tokyo. And one day, Miyaguchi approached Hayatsu and asked him if he wanted to get involved in the solar power business. 
Well, that doesn't sound shady at all. Like some <laughs> random guy's like, hey, you want to get involved in solar power? Yes, sir. Well, to be fair to Hayatsu, you know, Miyaguchi obviously was from Nippon, um, you know, well, a subsidiary of, of Nippon TV, which is a very, very large and well-respected company. So Yeah, yeah. You know, it's understandable why he thought it was legit. And then, so after Miyaguchi approached Hayatsu, they set up a company of which Miyaguchi became the president, the Synergy Corporation that I mentioned, that would be the subcontractor. Mm-hmm. And Hayatsu rented a condominium in Itabashi. <laughs> and he and Miyaguchi began, <laughs> like, living together. What? Okay. <laughs> well, they... You know, so that they could do more work because Miyaguchi mm-hmm. warned him, you know, they would be so busy, he wouldn't have time to go home and see his family. So they rented a condominium and they were basically doing their, their work out of there. And apparently, according to the article, Miyaguchi became kind of more and more violent as the days went on. <laughs> started, saying, <laughs> started saying things like, I'll kill you to um to Hayatsu and actually uh-huh. became physically violent as well. You know, one mm. incident that's related in the article is when they were in some kind of shopping or entertainment area, you know, a kind of busy area, and uh Miyaguchi sort of pushed him over and stepped on his head. Wow. Yeah. Hayatsu was told to always have his phone ready. And not to contact his family. And Miyaguchi, Miyaguchi uh, according to the article, took his insurance card, his health insurance card, and his driver's license as a kind of collateral. Threatened what? to sell, Threatened to sell his home if he escaped. And talked about using his, uh, you know, shady connections, I suppose. His kind of urajimyaku, like, kind of, well, I suppose it's it's hinting at, you know, Yakuza connections. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it seems like Hayatsu was under a lot of pressure, to say the least. I guess so. So then around spring of 2013, according to the article, construction started on solar power sites in Iwate. And the two of them moved together to Sendai City, nearby in Miyagi, uh, Miyagi uh, Prefecture. Mm-hmm. And according to the article, <laughs> when they moved to Sendai, so Hayatsu lived in a kind of, um, in an apartment, which is like, how would you say that in English? Like a, it's kind of just like a flat, I suppose. But it, yeah, the yeah. image of it is not particularly fancy. Well, mm-hmm. Miyaguchi lived in a, a kind of high rise, a condominium nearby. <laughs> sort of lived with some woman who, according to the article, was involved in Mizushobai, the water trade, so basically like a hostess or someone yeah, like that. She was a a night lady. A night lady. I mean, hey, you know, whatever Miyaguchi's woman does is 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 fine, you know. <laughs> That's not like it's a bit sort of mean of the article to kind of cast shade on her like that, but the implication is is not it's not very nice, I suppose, the way it's written in the article. Even though that is yeah, perhaps a bit unfair, yeah. I think. And, and then, also, um, hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, like, like Ferg says, like whatever you want to do for a living, that's your business. But mm. it's uh, it it does also fit into the the Japanese stereotype of kind of these older men with somewhat shady connections and a decent amount of cash, like seem to always be dating these hostess type women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, there's there's another yeah perspective mm. on that. Yeah, certainly yeah. So, so then apparently, Hayatsu was kind of forced to hang around Miyaguchi's condominium and and go and like fetch him lunch and things yeah. and get him cigarettes. <laughs> Miyaguchi basically, according to the article, like played PlayStation uh, all day, you know. Uh huh. And then we'd go out drinking and visiting hostess bars and things at night. Yeah. Uh, well, at the same time, you know, Hayatsu was basically using any free time he had when he wasn't fetching cigarettes for for Miyaguchi to, you know, go and actually do a lot of the work, sort of visit the power sites, you know, mm-hmm. negotiate with the landowners and, and kind of sort out construction schedules and things. And according to the article, Miyaguchi only actually visited the site in Iwate, you know, maybe a handful of times while he was mm-hmm. living in Sendai over a period of 18 months or so. So it sounds like he was living the dream, I suppose. Yeah, living the dream. <laughs> yes, Look at so. him. And then after 18 months or so, Miyaguchi moved to a 700,000 yen uh, rent, about $7,000 rent uh, condominium in Roppongi in Tokyo. Whoa. According to Moving that, up. Moving up in the world. And that is very expensive for an apartment in in Japan, isn't it? For a yeah, I think, um, mm. you know, I'm sure like in London or, or New York or, um, you know, San Francisco, it's it's not unheard of. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, mm. it's you know, on the higher end, but it's not like crazy. Yeah. Um, but, but in Tokyo, yeah, rents are, generally speaking, especially compared to some of the other cities I mentioned, are, are pretty low, like, pretty damn low yeah um i you know i mean i would even say you know a thousand to two thousand us a month i mean that's already kind of getting kind of into the high end yes yes and but and then yeah if you're if you're talking like seven thousand a month i mean that's like that's crazy high rent so i mean that's good that's gonna be a pretty nice place Yes, I agree. I mean, yeah. I'd say even though, as you said, in cities like New York, San Francisco and London and things, you know, 2000 US dollars a month might not certainly not unheard of and quite normal for like a, a professional. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In Tokyo, anything over 2000 is quite, you know, you think, oh, they're doing quite well for themselves. It's quite. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So so <laughs> this guy was living in a 700,000 yen or 7000 US dollars. Uh, condominium so he was doing pretty well indeed i guess and he was able to do this according to the article because synergy corporation was paying for the rent of his apartment uh synergy being the contractor that hayatsu oh so it was a tax write-off yes sir and (laughs) apparently they also paid for his drinks and things and a number of fancy cars for him to drive around in entertainment expense (laughs) Yes, uh, according to the article, they included, you know, a Ferrari, a Mercedes, a Hummer, and they all had 
<laughs> oh god. And even a boat as well. A boat. Whoa. Apparently yeah, the, he's living large. He's living large indeed. Apparently the boat was called G Force with the G standing for Gucci as in Mia Gucci. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he he took it all the way. He took it all the way, all the way. Yeah. According to the article, like the way they were actually able to do this was that basically Nippon TV, through their subsidiaries, would pay over the odds for the construction of the solar power farms. You know, the example given was that, for example, for a 2.5 billion yen, so like 25 million US dollars, a mm-hmm. solar power plant, they would pay 6 billion yen. So like 60 million US dollars, like, you know, more than more than double mm-hmm. what the actual market price of that would be. And then the excess cost of that construction would be basically kicked back to Synergy in the form of like consulting fees. So, wow. The, yeah, the subsidiaries of Nippon TV pay the construction company. Then the construction company pays money back to Synergy Corporation, which is a contractor of Nippon TV in the form of consulting fees. Uh-huh. So basically all kind of kickbacks, according to the article. And uh, according to like the profit and loss plans, it, these are, were internal gov- uh, documents that apparently Shukan Bunshin, the magazine, saw that were, you know, they submitted to banks and things in order to get loans to build mm-hmm. the uh, the power plants. They uh, expected to make so Sunway Work, one of the subsidiaries, expected to make around six hundred and sixty million yen to seven hundred and eighty million yen in profit per year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So about like six point six million US dollars between six point six and seven point eight million US dollars per year in profit. And you know, just to remind listeners, as I said at the top, a lot of that is basically coming from electricity consumers who are just normal people obviously you know everyone has to have electricity it's almost like a tax in a way and and it seems that you know the way they were able to get away with this was because no one or very few people within nippon tv actually had expertise about the solar power business so they didn't really know what they were doing so it's kind of left up to miyaguchi a lot of it and then you know he was able to live this lavish lifestyle and get kickbacks crazy crazy according to the article he also just bought a a like a new house and a a condominium in uh, hyogo prefecture where his family lived like he bought them outright without a mortgage according to the article wow yeah he was doing quite all right and according to the article he also made uh his subordinates including the head of the sales department and deputy head of accounting at Sunway Work, set up uh, companies in their relatives' names. I think one of them set it up in like his mother's name and one of them set it up in his wife's name or something like that, according mm-hmm. to the article. And then basically funneled money to them through Synergy, through the contractor, to these kind of paper companies that were set up by people working at Sunway Work. And then paid those companies cash. And then those companies, 
you know, there's, I mean, the Hayatsu, the guy who gave the interview to Shukan Binchin, said yeah. that he was paying this money to them as a way to kind of, for them not to tell anyone about oh, it. Oh, I see. But to give them their side of the story, they, one of the guys was, who set up one of these paper companies was also quoted in the article. And he said that they were then withdrawing the money in cash and giving it back to Miyaguchi. What? <laughs> so basically one of Miyaguchi's kind of people who work for him at the company, one of his subordinates, um, or two of them, sorry, set up these paper companies and then a subcontractor pays money to the paper companies and then the paper companies withdraw the money and give it back to Miyaguchi, according to the article. Uh, at this point, it's just like, yeah, whatever you say, man. <laughs> yeah, the, the examples, but not a small amount of money. I mean, the examples that were given were in 2015, both companies received uh, approximately 10.8 million, so just a bit over 100,000 US dollars. Yeah, yeah. And then a further, you know, sort of four or three million yen the next year. So about 40,000 or 30,000 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. US dollars, which is not a small chunk of change for an individual. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the guy who, as I said, gave or was also quoted in the article, he said that he was giving the money back to Miyaguchi. He said yeah. that. He was, uh, you know, he was also scared of Miyaguchi and that Miyaguchi had also used violence against him, was what he said in the article. Yikes. Yeah. And then, you know, just kind of wrap it up, uh, Hayatsu, the president of the subcontractor, apparently told executives at Nippon TV, the parent company, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in 2019 and also in 2020, but they kind of brushed him off and didn't want to hear about it. It was described as a kind of cover-up in the article. So Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. You know, who knows? Maybe Nippon TV just don't want to admit their, you know, the shady practices as a listed company, though. If it, if it is true, they probably do have a responsibility to their shareholders to disclose that information, I'm sure. Maybe yeah. even to sue their, their own subsidiaries to try and get the money back. It, you know, might be their their responsibility to their shareholders. So this, um, so this guy's still like, so nothing's like happened, right? As far as oh. like, the report just came out and. Sorry, the, the, the other important development is that Miyaguchi has quit the company. So that was part oh. of their rationale for brushing him off was like, well, Miyaguchi no longer works for Nippon TV or the subsidiaries. So, mm. I mean, it sounds like he's probably done fine. He's probably squirreled away enough money. No mortgage yeah. on his house or his condominium. He's probably living quite comfortably, I would imagine. Yeah. Although, if, mm. if the assets were owned by the company, quote-unquote, then I don't know how much he was able to to keep for himself. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, the um, the new house and the condominium in Hyogo, in the article, certainly seemed like it was owned by him. Oh, okay, okay. Well, the, the yeah, cars I'm, and things. I'm sure he did just fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if he got to keep the boat, though. No, no, that was apparently owned by the, the company. Oh, okay, okay. According to the article. The, the boats and cars were. So, quite astonishing, some of the shady goings-on, eh? In the solar power business. Yeah, I mean... It, 
feels like anytime there's a big like utilities involved, like there's always just some shady stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as I said, it does seem like the this sort of the solar power business, the way it was initially set up, did kind of lead to lots of shady business practices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it also made me think. So, mm-hmm. so you mentioned that. So, I so if I'm a guy, I have some land. Yeah. And I I go to the power company. I say, hey, I'm going to build some some panels. How much? How much? Uh, you know, what's how much you going to give me? And they'll they'll give me whatever the amount is. Yeah. And then I can take that and then go to a bank and say, Hey, I'm going to have this steady income. So give me some, give me a loan and I can use that loan to go buy some more land and I can just keep rolling that. Right. Exactly. Theoretically. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yes. So you can like make infinite money. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it does seem that like a lot of these, that's part of the problem because a lot of companies have done that. Yeah. And then, not actually built the solar power stations, which, as right, I said, right, doesn't right. contribute anything to the energy mix in the end. If anything, it just takes away land that could be used for solar power stations. Yeah, it's like it's like the modern day Konami code, man. It's just the just Konami keep, code. Yeah, where you get up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. BA yeah. select start or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah, you get like you get infinite monies. Uh, yeah. Yes, sir. Wow. Well, unfortunately, yeah, it looks like um, I don't think anyone's going to get what they deserve with this one. No. Swept under the rug. Yeah, I mean, it will be interesting to see if Nippon TV do disclose anything. As I said, it's in a kind of tabloid magazine, so they may just ignore it if they feel they can do so. Yeah, yeah. And to be fair, a lot of it is based on this, the interview with this one guy, so... Right, right, right. I mean, he has his own point of view, I'm sure. Okay, well, um, been going on about an hour here, so maybe mm. we'll wrap it up. Yes, sir. Okay, so as always, I'll go over our socials. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at username RealJapanGuys. Or you can email us at mail at thereal.jp or find us on the web at thereal.jp. Find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And thank you for sticking around, and we will see y'all again next week. Goodbye, listeners. Bye-bye.